Nurse.com is proud to be a sponsor of the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. As the premier destination for nursing knowledge and resources, Nurse.com supports your passion for healthcare with an unrivaled collection of tools, articles, and courses tailored for the nursing community. Get your daily dose of things you need to know for your nursing journey. Discover the world of nursing like never before with Nurse.com. Empower your practice, advance your career, and enrich your knowledge. Nurse.com. It's your nurse life all in one place. You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. I'm your host, Nurse Alice, clinical nurse specialist and family nurse practitioner. And on today's episode, I want to talk about something that can be a little bit sensitive, but it's something that we have to talk about. It's like an elephant in the room, and that is how to deal with dying and death in healthcare as a nurse, as a physician, aspiring medical student, nursing student, whatever the case may be, respiratory therapists. Listen, when you are in the business of caring for people, you have to understand that in caring for people, it doesn't always mean that we are going to save their lives, but sometimes the care that we provide is to keep them as comfortable as possible Now, some people are very comfortable in situations like that. And some of us still have yet to experience death in our personal lives. So that makes it very challenging with what to do, how to do it, how to respond, and how do you deal with all of the emotions that you may be feeling in this situation. Another reason why I believe that we as healthcare professionals can feel very uncomfortable when it comes to dying and death of patients is because we don't talk about it enough. Unfortunately, and I'm not just saying enough between us as healthcare providers, although that is true, right? Don't wait till it's just the in-service, the annual competency, or you are in the thick of it. You know, patients, families, are they having these conversations? Now, I'll tell you this. Some people don't even know what an advanced directive is, right? We ask patients when we're doing new patient registration or if they're having a procedure or getting admitted, we'll ask them, do you have an advanced directive? And some of them will stutter and say, I think so, or I don't know, ask my wife, ask my child, like they don't know. And I think it's important for us as healthcare professionals to really understand what an advanced directive is, because I don't think many of us have it either, right? So an advanced directive, these are directives, these are decisions that pertain to the treatment preferences and designating a surrogate decision maker in the event that a person should be unable to make their own medical decisions on their behalf. So advanced directives can generally fall into three categories. And you guys have heard these terms. You've heard living will, power of attorney, and a healthcare proxy. Well, what's the difference between all of those, right? So a living will, this is a written document that specifies what types of medical treatment are desired. And a living will can be very specific or very general. And the most common statement in a living will is something to the effect that if I suffer an incurable or irreversible illness, disease, or condition, and my attending physician determines that my condition is terminal, I direct that life-sustaining measures that would serve only to prolong my dying be withheld and discontinued. So we're familiar with that type of statement, but there's also the healthcare proxy. Now, this is a legal document in which individual designates another person to make healthcare decisions if he or she is unable or incapable 
of making their wishes known. So the healthcare proxy has, in essence, the same rights to request and refuse treatment that the individual would if capable of making and communicating decisions. The other document is a durable power of attorney. This is the third type of advanced directive, and this is where individuals can draft legal documents providing people the power of attorney in cases where they are in an incapacitating medical condition and the durable power of attorney allows the individual to make bank transactions, sign social security checks, apply for disability, pay utility bills, but make business and life decisions signing and acting on behalf of that individual because they are medically incapacitated and unable to do so themselves. I know when I reviewed these terms, I was thinking, hmm, I have some paperwork and stuff that I need to get in order because I'll be honest, in all my years of healthcare experience, I don't necessarily have all of these down in a legal document. I've talked to my family about them, but you guys, what we do know is that in the heat of the moment, when something is going down and the patient starts to deteriorate, although may, they may have talked to their family member about, you know, no, I don't want to be intubated. No, I don't want any surgeries. And the family understands that in the heat of the moment, when they feel like their loved one is a few seconds away from being permanently gone, they will change their mind. And unfortunately, a selfish desire to keep their family member alive supersedes their family member's original request. So some of this is it's to protect the patient also so that we are not prolonging any inevitable death or disregarding their wishes. Because, you know, sometimes people can get placed on these ventilators or have these surgeries and their life is forever changed and they're in a vegetative state and so they no longer have a quality of life. And so it's really kind of a selfish need, a selfish desire of the family member to keep the patient alive when the patient had already designated that that's not what they want. So unless these forms are in place, family members are going to be left to make these decisions if the patient becomes unable to. And we want to make sure that the patient is, we're able to honor what it is that the patient wants. Now I'm going to share a personal experience. I didn't talk about this much when it happened, but I lost my mother right before the pandemic. I didn't really talk about it. I wasn't ready to. And I was still grieving when the pandemic and the shutdown started. And so, you know, it was, it was very unusual for me because I was still grieving the death of my mom and then being thrusted into a world where people were dying left and right. I was literally numb. I didn't know what to feel, how to feel other than trying to make the patient as comfortable as possible and ask family about advanced directives and try to have those conversations early on about what is it that have you had a talk with your dad? Do you know what your dad would have wanted? Does he have an advanced directive? Because this is the pathway that we're on. And so I was someone who I took my personal experience and I was able to take that energy, those feelings and try to honor someone else's family and their loved ones. So what I didn't know was that my mom had an advanced directive, a living will, and all of those things that I just named earlier. I didn't know. I didn't know. I remember having conversations with my mom. She's like, oh, don't worry. I have all that figured out. But, you know, this is what I want. So I kind of knew what she wanted and what she didn't want. So I tried to honor those things when we were asked to make decisions 
but I felt guilty. I felt horrible afterwards. And it wasn't until I actually found the documents in her legal paperwork that I did. I have some sense of relief that I really did honor her wishes. But guys, that's not going to be the case for everyone. And you as a healthcare professional, you guys are in the thick of it. We are in the thick of it, right? So not only are we having to help families deal and cope with the loss of their loved one, because you know how, how painful that is to hear the screams and cries of family members out in the waiting area. You could be down the hallway, but you can hear those screeches, those tears, and it hurts. It hurts, even though it's not your family member. And even you as a healthcare professional, you've been breaking your back all day, sweating, slaving to help take care of a patient, to keep them going, to keep them alive. And sometimes we can do everything possible and it's not enough. And the patient dies. And especially in those situations, we can develop ties and bonds with our patients, personal connections for a variety of reasons, because you've put so much effort into taking care of them. They may remind you of a loved one or a friend, but you feel like, man, is there something I could have done different? Is there something I could have done better, faster? Did I miss something? And you can beat yourself up all day about it, but I'm going to ask you that you don't. Now is reflection good? Should you reflect on what happened? You know, look at how the patient was progressing, what your interventions were. Yes, absolutely. I don't think there's anything wrong with evaluating what you did. But after that, let it go. Don't beat yourself up. You have information to apply for the next time, but don't allow this situation to play over and over in your head. Now, again, considering what happened last year, it was hard because the minute one person unfortunately would die you'd be taking care of someone else with COVID and then they would die and it was just almost constant exposure to death and dying and I've heard some of y'all stories and actually I have some stories too but you know having maybe four patients in a room but the person in the back corner died but you don't have help to move the other people so the person is laying in their in the bed for a little bit longer than they normally would because we don't have the assistance to get them moved out and taken to the morgue. And then we saw that morgues were hospital morgues were filling up. So we were having to put them in truck coolers. Like this is, was like totally devastating, very traumatic. And honestly, guys, we have seen images that we wish we could erase. Like I wish I could take my eyeballs out and scrub them with soap and water and dip them in bleach and put them back in because there are some things that I saw that I wish I could, could be unseen. I think the next hardest thing for many of us outside of seeing our patient die is the family. Now, one thing with COVID is many people weren't able to come in and be with their families, which I think is even more heartbreaking because some of these conversations we were having to have over the telephone and actually having to have via iPads, but the cries of the family are, are what kills us. And if the family's there, they're looking at you, they're on the phone, they, you might feel compelled to think like, oh my gosh, I, I need to say something. Sometimes there are no good words to say that can make anyone feel better. There aren't. And sometimes it's silence. Sometimes your silence and just being present, you can say to the families, you know, I'm really sorry for your loss. I know this is a very challenging time. I want to be here for you and your family. So if you can let me know if there's anything that I can do to help you right now. And even if you don't know what that is at the moment, feel free to call back to the hospital and let us know how we can help you. I do have a few 
questions that I need to ask you. But if you're not ready, we can go over these in a little bit. Call me later where I can try you later and we can go over these questions. Because let me tell you, that's one thing I hated. You know, that little, the patient death checklist that you had to go over, like you'd have to figure out, is a patient a donor? Are they eligible for a donor? Did you call, you know, the donor company is an autopsy needed? Was the family notified? Is there a morgue? And all of these things, like, I don't want to go through a checklist when my patient has just died. I feel like it's very insensitive, not only to the family, but also to the nurse. Man, and especially during COVID, and I get it, I get it. We didn't have a lot of space. We had patients that were waiting. We had to push through. But man, if it didn't make you feel all kind of jacked up inside, because I know I did. And it made me think about my own personal experience with my mom and how I was just, I miss my mom, but how I was thankful that she didn't pass during COVID because I don't know how I would have been able to handle all of this. I really don't. And, you know, even now, Patients are coming back to the hospital. If you have a family member, or excuse me, you have families coming back to the hospital. If you have a family, a patient who's died and the family's there, you know, if you're a hugger, be available for a hug. Offer them a chair, some Kleenex, some water, maybe rub a back or something like that. You know, be, be appropriate though. But I mean, just sometimes just your presence is enough. Just being there, like quietly in the back of the room. Or if someone is, let's say, they're actively dying and the family's coming in the room. Listen, encourage the family to say, you know, it's up to you, but you know, you can go ahead and hold your mom's hand. Go ahead and talk to her. She may be able to hear you even if she can't respond. I'm going to be back here. I'm going to step back and give you some privacy, but feel free to talk to her. Feel free to play music. All of those things, you want to try to make the family feel as comfortable as possible. And I think in doing those things, we can find ourselves feeling helpful because in situations where our patient's dying or they've already died, we feel helpless. Sometimes we can feel like we failed. And the truth is you didn't fail. Death is inevitable. Just as much as we are born, one day we will die. We don't like to talk about it, but it is what it is. And I'm not being insensitive. Absolutely, I'm not. I just think this is a conversation that we don't talk enough about. And I think in, in my, my years of experience, and especially this past year, I've been surrounded so much by dying patients and families, and also having recently experienced my own loss, I kind of felt like I knew what I wanted from the nurses. So I tried to be that for other families. But the, as you as a healthcare provider, as the nurse, as a doctor, don't beat yourself up. Just try to provide your patient as much of a dignified and respectful death and passing as possible. Guys, words matter. Watch what you're saying in the break room. Watch what you're saying in the hallways. Don't think that people and other families don't hear you. You have to be sensitive with what you're saying. Okay. Even if families aren't there, not saying the patients can hear you after they've passed and all that stuff. I'm not going to go there, but I'm just saying, watch what you say. Be respectful. For those of you who might need an example of what I'm referring to when I say be respectful, you know, I've heard comments everywhere from toe tag them or I need a plastic bag or another one in the ice box or something to that effect. And that is not how we are communicating about people when they have passed. Okay. Or I've heard things like, well, I knew they were going to die. It just, you know, they should have never even been transferred here anyways. I don't even know why, you know, saying all of these things. And even if there's any 
ounce of truth in any of those things. Okay, get it. Have that conversation later, but we're not going to have that conversation right now. Have some class about yourself. And in fact, when I hear nurses say those type of things, it makes me think like, oh, who hurt you? Who hurt you? Like, why are you so mad? Why are you so insensitive? Why are you so cold like an icebox? Are we feeling unloved? Like, why are we talking so negatively and pessimistically about people who've already died? I mean, they don't even have the opportunity to defend themselves. Like, let's be kinder. I think that can go a long ways. And I think that, and I know some of us work in toxic units, toxic cultures, but don't let that be, you know, like snap back, get some class about yourself. You are a nurse. You are the most trusted profession. People come to us because we care, right? There's an art and there's a science to what we do. And so part of that is also in our bedside mannerism, have some respect, put some respect on that patient's name. I'm not necessarily the guru on death and dying. I've had my family members pass away in the hospital. I'm a nurse for over 20 something years working in the ICU and ERs. I've seen it firsthand with my patients and I know how it's made me feel. So, you know, these are some things that I just wanted to share with y'all. But if you guys have some tips or suggestions or things you want to share with our fellow colleagues, please let us know here at nurse.org. We'd love to hear them. We'd love to share them. My name is Nurse Alice, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, please be kind to one another, make good choices and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.